are looking live on tape to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything and everything, just not sports. We like to call it sports talk without all the sports talk. On today's show, we'll talk to former NFL linebacker Chad Brown about his lifelong passion for reptiles and the time he almost got eaten by a snake while holding a chicken. And we'll take a fond look back at the movie He Got Game and discuss the mysterious disappearance of Ray Allen's acting career. I am your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer here in Chicago. And joining me in the studio is a leading sports media strategist who's worked for the University of Colorado, the Green Bay Packers, and many, many global sports brands. It's Adam Willard. Adam, how are you? I'm great, Brad. How are you? Oh, our first show. This is amazing. It's finally here. It's finally here. So for the people listening... Our families, our friends, reptile enthusiasts. Just Not Sports is something we've been talking about for a long time. We work in sports. We spend a lot of our days with athletes, with sports media, with people who work for a living, for teams and leagues and brands and all the ecosystem of sports. And the one thing that I would say about it is, man, it's a grind and it's work. (laughs) And no one likes to talk about work all the time. My job with the Green Bay Packers was to coach players to talk to the media. Now, every once in a while, they got to talk about something personal, but mainly it was about what happened in the game, what happened at practice, why did you lose your starting spot. And as you say, Brad, it gets old having those conversations over and over again. And if you watch most sports interviews or listen to sports radio at all, you can kind of predict what the athlete's next answer is going to be. Like, no comment. But not here. <laughs> but not here, bro. Not here. I love it. I mean, look, we're going to do two things. We're going to talk to the sports world about passions and interests they have away from the games, away from their job. Um, and this can be anything and everything. I mean, that's what we say. It's anything and everything, just not sports. Um So our goal is to have them bring the topic and to really dive deep into something they actually like. This is not the podcast where it's like hey i'm you know i'm kind of into this but i want to go deep into what you like whether it's weird or off the wall or i have no idea about it at all i mean that's the whole point and we hear those types of things all the time when you worked for the packers i mean i'm sure you heard of examples of someone being into something or they were doing something and you're like what but it's awesome that's what they should be doing right uh like a player who was into noodling you know what noodling is, right? No. Noodle, like noodling is in like that marketing term people say when they're like, hey, Adam, can you noodle on this no, project? No, and hopefully <laughs> I'm saying this correctly, but it's where you fish with your arm. So you go into water, right? See? Okay. Then we'll, I'll figure out who this player is, but you stick your hand into, submerge it into water, and these giant fish will grab onto your arm, so you're basically you're using your hand and arm as bait. Now, they don't bite so hard that they're going to tear your hand off. They could hurt you, but then you pull them out with your arm, and that is the art of noodling. Have you done this? No. Have you seen it? Uh, on ESPN 3 at 4 in the morning, but no, not in person. If you work in sports and you noodle anytime you want to be on the show, we're ready. Come on. We love this stuff. We Nothing else bothers us more than just athletes being told 
you know, oh, you can't be yourself. You can't be interesting. You can't be colorful. You're violating the unwritten rules or or you're out of line or you're not a team guy. I want our public figures who are, you know, not in politics or, you know, they're not doctors. They're just entertainers and they're interesting. And I want them to show off what makes them interesting about them. And so this is a safe space, man. We're not going to be snarky. You're launching a TGI Fridays business chain and you're all in, you're all about it. I'm all about it too. Let's talk about how you're going to put together your kitchen staff. <laughs> you know, you, you're into to reptiles or you're into whatever. That's interesting to me. And I, I think too often in the social media age, these guys do something weird and it just becomes this like faux outrage and everyone's pissed off about it. Uh, no way, man. I mean, as long as it's not bothering anybody else, be weird and wild and be you, man. Absolutely. And, and this is also not to criticize sports radio or sports journalism in general. I went to school to be a, a sports journalist, but there's a time and a place for that. And it's not here. We right. just want to take a different angle on what athletes are and what they're interested in. All right, but enough about what this show is. Let's get into actually what this show is. Our guest today is Chad Brown. During his 15-year NFL career, he gained a reputation as one of the most athletic and ferocious linebackers in the entire league. A three-time Pro Bowler and two-time All-Pro, Chad retired in 2008 with more than 1,000 combined tackles and nearly 80 career sacks. Plus, he played an integral part in the resurgence of two great and storied franchises. During the mid-1990s, he helped anchor the Pittsburgh Steelers as they rebuilt their steel curtain defense and returned to the Super Bowl. And after signing with Seattle, he helped the Seahawks become a playoff fixture and went down as one of the team's all-time statistical leaders on defense. These days, you can hear him on a variety of sports talk shows, chiming in about the NFL and what's going on in the league. And he spent the 2015 preseason as a coaching intern with the Seahawks, perhaps foreshadowing a return to the NFL sidelines. But that's his day job, and we're not going to talk about any of that. We're going to talk about a lifelong passion of Chad's, reptiles. Uh, Chad, this is one of our all-time favorite athlete interests. Uh, thank you for coming on. How are you? I'm fantastic, and uh, thanks for having me on. And I, I talk so much about football nowadays, it's, it's nice to talk about uh, some of the other things that I do. Yeah, no, I mean, well, I, I tell you what, I'm, I'm, I'm watching you on Twitter last night, and literally people are texting or are sending you photos of snakes for you to identify in the wild. How often do people reach out to you to just like solve their day-to-day -day reptile problems? I would say at least a couple times a week. <laughs> a friend of mine or someone on Twitter or someone will call here to the office or one of my wife's friends will, you know, call and hey, there's a snake in the, you know, in the laundry room and they'll send over a, a you know, an iPhone picture and yeah, so it happens quite frequently, uh, more frequently than I would have guessed it would have ever happened to me. But, yeah, I am the uh, go-to snake expert, and uh, it happens all the time. People want to help me, have me identify an animal for them. You, you ever get worried, like, you, you send them back a tweet, and then a minute later you're like, wait a minute, maybe that wasn't what I thought it was, and uh, <laughs> I told them not to worry about it. No, you know, it, I, I would definitely, you know, err on the side of, of caution. If there was any chance it would, you know, something that would, could be venomous, it could hurt them, I, I would definitely uh, t recommend that they call animal control. Uh, I'm never going to recommend somebody, you know, deal with a, a venomous animal on their own. There's experts who can handle that for them. Yeah. So, so Chad, this is obviously a, a unique interest. When did you first realize that you were interested in reptiles? 
As a kid, uh, and uh, I'm not sure how old you guys are, but uh, I watched uh, Marlon Perkins' uh, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so that was the, you know, for those listening who never had a chance to see it, it was kind of the precursor to uh, a lot of these animal shows that are on TV now. Uh, and, you know, Marlon Perkins and his guy, Jim, who was the guy who did most of the rough stuff, were kind of the early crocodile hunter kind of guys that went on these adventures and, you know, captured animals and tagged them and relocated them and all that stuff. So as a kid in the 70s watching those shows really sparked my animal interest. I grew up uh, in an area of Southern California, kind of in the the hills of uh, the the Altadena, Pasadena area, and there were always reptiles around um, and amphibians, so lots of snakes and lizards and frogs. And uh, some of my neighbors actually had, uh, you know, peacocks and some exotic birds, and there were a couple of small kind of homestead farms around my area as well. So I got, I got exposed to animals very early, and that started the fascination. And then watching these programs and realizing, wow, there's snakes that grow to be 20-plus feet. Um, there's, you know, giant sea turtles that weigh a ton. You know, all those kind of mind-blowing stats for a 7- or 8-year-old kid really sparked that interest. And uh, I was lucky enough to have two parents who really read and, supported my uh you know my reading interest took me to the library all the time so as a kid i could usually be, be found in the altadena public library in the animal section always reading about animals and uh although my mother uh wasn't uh too keen to me taking many animals into my bedroom for my 12th birthday she got me a mexican red leg uh, tarantula so an odd choice for a first exotic pet but uh, I had that animal for about 10 years, uh, ended up being a pretty great low-maintenance pet, uh, even got out once and gave the, big, the family a scare as it crawled down a plant in the living room one night as we were all in the living room watching uh, Monday Night Football. Yeah, I, I think you can look at, at kids and, and teens and people coming of age and you divide them into two camps, like people who see kind of creepy crawly reptiles or things like a tarantula and go closer to it to check it out. And people like me who like ran away and called for his mom to come out with a shovel. Did, did you like from, from day one, did you just know, like, I'm like, were you fearless? Would you walk up to a, a snake and handle it or, or, or get close to it to take a better view? Or did you, was there ever like a barrier you had to get over to reach that point? I think all the interactions I had with the wild animals around me, and in California there's not tarantulas, but there are wolf spiders, which are a smaller version. Right. And I had captured wolf spiders before and you know, kept them in aquariums and jars and kind of checked them out and studied them. So I certainly was respectful of the animals, and you know, whether it's a snake or a lizard and their bite or a tarantula and their venom. But at the same time, I, I, I was that kid opposite you where I wanted to be closer to them. I wanted to know more about them. Um, you know, I was a kid who put, you know, nose prints on the glass at the zoo. Because <laughs> I couldn't get close enough. That was always kind of my, my uh, mindset with the animals. I want to get closer. I, I can't get quite all the way as close as I would like to. Uh, so I had, a, again, a healthy fear and respect. But at various places along my reptile journey, I've certainly been frightened and certainly been scared and and realized how powerful or how big or you know how frightening it is to handle a, a venomous animal or a 25 foot plus python. Those are some pretty amazing things. 
and uh, I think fear should be in your mind when you're doing those types of uh, things with those large or powerful animals. Can can you give us an example? What was what was a moment where you were really afraid of a, an encounter with a with a, either a venomous or a large snake? Uh, I went to Indonesia. I have a good friend who lives about uh, 45 minutes from me in Boulder, Colorado, uh, Cameron Tepedlin of Bushmaster Reptiles. And Cameron goes all over the world and has set up some breeding farms in various places around the world. But he is a reptile collector, kind of a, a, a free-spirited guy who's been able to make a living uh, going after really large animals. And, in fact, uh, I think the Bronx Zoo hired him a few years ago to try to collect some 28-foot python in some village in Indonesia. But on this trip, we went to an island, and one of the first things you do when you get to one of these islands is there's usually a skin person on the island who sells reptile skins. So you go visit the skin guy, and we're looking at these skins, and we're quickly recognizing that the new species of python that we don't really know about on this island. And it's a pretty big python. Now, there also is reticulated pythons on this island as well, which is the longest species of python on the planet. Anacondas are the heaviest snakes on the planet, but reticulated pythons are the longest. And there have been records of them almost to be 30-plus feet. Wow. So uh, we hire a local guide, and we are going to go to this cave to try to find these new species of python. And uh, our guide happens to be a guy who has a chicken farm, so a small chicken farm, and he says, we should take a chicken as bait. So we all agree, sure, we'll take a chicken as bait. And we leave his house, and he says, the cave's about a four- or five-mile walk. Now, of course, pythons are nocturnal, so we're doing this in the evening. Um, and it's, it's Indonesia. There's no street lights. It's just some moonlight and some stars and or a couple of flashlights. And we had been on this island for a couple of days and did some exploring, and a couple of days earlier we saw a really large sinkhole. And we, in the sinkhole, we saw that there were some trapped crocodiles. But they weren't small. They were probably 15-foot-plus crocodiles. Uh, so, you know, all this is kind of going through my mind as we are walking to this cave with a chicken. And, and it's like, okay, this is starting to feel just a little bit absurd. You know, it's nighttime. We're in unfamiliar territory. We got a chicken we have to cross a river to get to the cave, and I saw these large crocodiles just a couple days before. And then when we were at the skin guy, we saw some reticulated python skins that were, now when, when they take the skin off the animal and they dry it, it stretches about 20%, but right. some of these skins were 25 feet long. Ugh. So, okay, so there's 25, there's 20-foot pythons, there's 15-foot crocodiles, I have a chicken <laughs> in my hand, and it's dark, and it's at night, and I'm in a completely unfamiliar territory. And if I had to run, I could not tell you where our guide's house is or how to get back there. Hey, Chad, two. So after a couple of miles. Oh, yes? Sorry, two pieces of advice here. One, get someone else to hold the bait. <laughs> right, right. What's the second piece of advice? Flashlights, man. Like more bigger flashlights and, and like just light up the night. You know what I mean? Like dark anything in the dark with snakes, like ah, I'm getting freaked out. We're in a dark studio, I'm getting freaked out just hearing you talk about it. Uh, I'm good too. Well, we did have flashlights. They weren't they weren't very powerful, but yeah, we did right. have flashlights. So at any rate, you know, I'm having these thoughts going through my mind and I'm realizing for the first time in my life. I'm prey. I'm a food item. 
I'm carrying this chicken with me, which I think is a food item for you know for humans and occasionally we actually use it as bait for these snakes. But I'm actually a food item out here. These things would eat me. Now they would have a, a snake would have a tough time swallowing a human being my size, a really tough time. Probably wouldn't be able to get it down. But I certainly wouldn't want to find out. So <laughs> right. we finally, after a couple of miles, we get to the river, and in my mind, I was thinking more of a stream. It's a river. And our guide says, hey, you should hold the chicken above your head when you cross the river so it doesn't get wet. And I'm like, whoa, 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 okay, <laughs> all right. I'm not holding the chicken above my head because, number one, it's going to crap on my head. Number two, I'm not worried about the chicken getting wet. I'm worried about the crocodiles that we can't see because we're trying to cross the river at night in Indonesia. This is just a bad <laughs> idea, fellas. Right. So I'm the first one to vocalize this. And then we have an interpreter who is kind of giving the English, uh, the, the Indonesian to our guide, and he's giving back the Indonesian from our guide back to us in English. And so the interpreter says, oh, wow, okay, so our guide, he is very relieved. He thought he was with the great American python hunters, and you guys would protect him. But he does not want to cross this river. He is very afraid to be looking for this python at night. Um, can we come back tomorrow? I'm like, great. Yes, let's walk back to his house, have a couple of Indonesian beers, yeah. and we can make a plan for tomorrow because this is not a good idea to cross this river at night. How many times have you been bitten? I've been bitten a number of times. When you deal with uh, you know as many snakes as, as I have bred over the years, you get bit a lot. Unfortunately, not by the larger snakes. By the time right. a snake is big enough to be a breeder for me, or I'm going to have it in my collection for years and years and years, they're usually quite tame. And for the most part, I, I bred snakes that would be pet appropriate, which means they're not going to be too big, they're not going to need to feed on some weird item, and they're going to be very tame, docile snakes. But baby snakes, having you know that wiring from the wild, are always going to be fearful. This mm -hmm. big, giant hand resembles a bird in the wild this hand kind of reaching them out of the cage also resembles a bird that's in the wild it's going to eat them right so when you hatch out you know uh, over the course of a year a couple thousand baby snakes and you have to handle them to clean their cage or to help them shed their skin or to figure out what sex they are at some point you're going to get bit so during baby season uh particularly when we were sexing babies i would get bitten literally hundreds of times in a day baby oh. snake bites aren't dangerous it would just literally be a series of pinpricks on my fingers. But I've been bitten by some larger snakes, uh, fortunately very, very rarely. Uh, I've always thought of myself as a pretty good reptile keeper. Right. And, you know, I never liked being bit. It hurts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it hurts. And there's, no, and there's really no reason to be bit. If you've got a snake that's, uh, you know, a known biter, you should obviously be cautious with it when you're handling it and have a good sense of familiarity with that animal so you can avoid that. Because not only, you know, if, it's a, if you're a commercial reptile breeding business, having mean snakes doesn't really pay off because they typically have mean babies, but also it takes more staff time to take care of mean snakes. It's harder to clean that cage, work with the animal as closely, monitor its health as closely, if you're always afraid you're going to be bit. So I generally do not work with those species, or if I had babies that I thought were going to grow up and be mean, I usually would you know, sell them off to, to other people in the industry. Right. I mean, you mentioned your breeding. I know that you, you did, you've done that extensively. I have a question about 
you talk about like working more with sedative types of species or or pet friendly species can these types of reptiles ever be truly pets or i mean domesticated is too strong a word but i and i say this having an anecdote in mind i had a friend who had a boa constrictor when we were in high school and he would like take it out after a few beers and like fall asleep with it like roman free on its bed and we always would joke like it doesn't have anything saying it shouldn't kill you tonight other than it's just decision not to if you're passed out on your bed and the things roaming around you so i how sort of friendly and or domesticated can snakes be at the core or have we gotten to a point where it's just pretty masterful and uh, you don't have to you know you guys have it down to a science well i think domesticated is a good word for a majority of the reptile species that are in the pet trade Right. If you were to go to your local big box uh, pet store or Petco or PetSmart, something like that, uh, the species that are going to be for sale there have probably been bred in captivity for, you know, 30 or 40 plus generations. So if that's not domesticated, I don't know what is. Because as a breeder, you know, I talked about some of my criteria. Right. You know, I want snakes that, uh, or reptiles, not just snakes, but lizards or all the other animals I work with, turtles, tortoises, and amphibians as well. I wanted my customer to have a great experience. Hard to have a great experience if you have difficulty feeding your animal right. or if it feeds on, you know, mealworms from the Tibetan highlands or something. You've got to get things that it can actually feed on. If, it's, uh, you know, if it has a tendency to bite, well, if I breed this for 20 generations, if I keep selecting tamer and more docile babies, chances are those are going to grow up to be docile adults who are also going to have docile babies. So you begin to start that domestication process uh, as a breeder and selecting for the traits that you want, just as, you know, dog breeders want pit bulls with blue noses and really big, thick, wide, <laughs> chunky heads. Right. I made selections all the times when selecting babies to hold back from our breeding stock that I thought would be, you know, more colorful, better feeders, produce more babies, and you know, also provide a fantastic pet experience for whoever ended up owning, owning that animal. Yeah, I mean, you talk about whoever ends up owning the animal. You know, you're you're a clearly a big guy, professional athlete. You know, you're someone who's probably not easily intimidated. But at the same time, I'm curious how many, like, you know, big, intimidating professional athletes, NFL players, did you see just completely cower in fear if you introduced them to a snake or a reptile like this? Well, when I was with the Seattle Seahawks, we played uh, the Denver Broncos – uh, every year because we were in the same division. So kind of right. that was uh, probably about 10 years ago when the Seahawks went from the AFC West to the NFC West. But at that time, at Seahawks, I would bring teammates from the team hotel and, to, and bring them to my facility here in Denver and show them what I do and, you know, actually, you know, feed some snakes and kind of give them the whole, the whole show of what we do. And, yeah, it was always, you know, pretty funny to see a 300-pound man afraid of a you know one foot long baby snake <laughs> and literally run out of the room in fear um it's the snake thing is uh i last time i read a study on it is a taught fear if you put snakes around babies the babies don't cower in fear from a snake uh the fear of snakes is taught babies do cower in fear in most circumstances from spiders so that spider fear is for some reason inbred into us where the, the fear of snakes uh, obviously there's a story of the bible and there's some cultural things that go with that but that is something that is taught to us 
So to see a 300-pound man afraid of a snake, whether it's taught to him or not, is always pretty funny to see. Uh, how much of the role of, of popular media plays into that perpetuating the fear of snakes? So um, even on movies like Harry Potter where reptiles right. are the bad guys, how much does that negative stereotype play into the fear aspect of reptiles? Well, I think it's huge because as a child, you don't ever hear a good story about snakes. You know, you flip on the news, and if if there's one snake that comes through a, a toilet in Maine, you'll hear about it on the news in California. So it, it, there's 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 always these sensationalized stories. You know, there was the python issue in the Everglades for a couple of years, and. You know, you would have thought that there were 50-foot snakes snatching people out of boats. You know, I, I, that's how these things are portrayed in the media. Everything about reptiles, particularly snakes, is sensationalized. And it's, it's, it's almost impossible to find a good snake story anywhere in, in popular media. So, yeah, we are taught as young people to have a fear of snakes, to be afraid of snakes, and, you know, again, it's not just here in 2015. Uh, obviously, the, the Bible has a story in the Garden of Eden that snake tricked Eve. So snakes have been uh, a, a part of culture for forever, and they've always been a part of negative culture and a negative fear and a negative connotation about what they are and what they actually do. Chad, you um, obviously breed snakes, but in terms of animal rights, you don't often hear Save the Snakes campaigns. You hear, um, you know, people are up in arms when a lion or a black rhino is killed, but I don't think people have the same views of reptiles. What is your view on the, the general view about uh, reptiles and the role they play in their ecosystem and why they're just as as valuable to their ecosystems as any other animal. Uh, they're a huge part of it, and we all, you know, I think the rodent extermination business is uh, a multi-billion-dollar business. Well, it would be much more than that if we didn't have snakes out there eating all these rodents, uh, you know, kind of on the outskirts of our communities. Um, you know, here in Denver. Where I live, uh, there's all this green space around, so every year, starting around this time of the year when it starts getting colder outside, you know, you, you, you rodents will try to find your way into people's houses, and I see all the exterminators all around. Well, if you don't allow the, these snakes to live in these, in these habitats, you're going to continue to have these types of issues. And uh, the, the ecosystem is literally a system, and if you remove these predators, which are, snakes are, if you remove them from these ecosystems, the ecosystem doesn't function as well and as properly as it, as it, as it should. So it's important uh, to keep you know, rodent populations down, rabbit populations down, particularly in the western U.S., to have these, these snakes out there doing what they do. Um, they play important roles in ecosystems worldwide. Uh, they are uh, an a almost living dinosaur that is almost a, a, a linchpin in these systems enable them to work as well as they do, whether we're talking about rainforest, on the savannas of Africa, or in some green space a mile from my house here in Denver. Uh, 
Chad, I'm assuming you own several or at least at least a couple reptiles right now. And I guess I'd be curious, wh- what names do you choose for them? Well, when we were a commercial breeder, it was impossible to give everything a, yeah, a no, cute clearly. name. So the animals were, were, were numbered, and we had a kind of a barcode system that we used to keep track of animals and animal lineages so I could know five generations ago who were the grandparents, who were the great-grandparents, and, you know, how did I, how was I able to get this banding baby, instead of this striped baby, to express these different genetic traits. So that was within the commercial system. Now I just have a couple of reptiles. Um, I don't still don't have any names for them. Uh, oh really? But I do have a, a gecko. Uh, I do have a gecko that I, I have had in my basement. I actually keep it in my workout room. Uh, I cleaned its cage today. Had it for almost 20 years. Uh, wow. We do have a, a one lizard here at the shop. His name is Fernando. He is 50 years old. Wow. He is the world's largest uh, beaded lizard, which is a uh, venomous lizard from uh, northern Mexico, a cousin of the Gila monster. Um, but he's yeah, the world's largest one, so he's an amazing example of his species. Uh, and that's about it. A couple of my staff have a couple of reptiles, but we had our fire uh, in right. late 2011, and I lost the uh, entire snake collection in the fire. And then after about a year or so, we decided to uh, disband the lizard breeding collection as well. Uh, it was a tough emotional decision, but that fire really broke my heart and made it difficult to move forward as a live animal breeder. Yeah, Chad, you mentioned that. I watched some footage online when we were preparing for the interview, and even in the heat of like such a traumatic experience, you were in the interviews I saw, you were so positive in terms of, you know, hey, I'm we're going to move forward and and you know, we don't want to, you know, I don't want to sit here and just dwell on this. I, but how how was that to to deal with? I mean, clearly there're thousands of animals that were involved in that and that was your, you know, livelihood away from from sports at the time. Um, how were you able to maintain a, an, a, an attitude that allowed you to move forward instead of just dwelling on the tragedy that happened? Well, you know, I, I used the word heartbreaking, and that's literally what it was. And I, the first couple days, uh, the day of the fire, then the couple days after that, it's about a 20-minute drive from my house, from the from our facility to my house. You know, I cried the entire drive. Um you know, for the first three or four days, my heart was broken. And even just talking about it now, I can kind of feel, you know, the emotions coming back. And my throat gets a little tight and all that stuff. It really was heartbreaking. And I had some of those animals uh, for 20-plus years and, and raised, you know, generation after generation and, and poured so much energy and effort and money into that business. And it wasn't just some TVs on a the shelf. These were all living creatures. And to you know the the to know that they all suffered in that way was was really heartbreaking. So it was you know broke my heart from a personal perspective, from a business perspective, from a 20 years of work perspective, from a financial perspective. You know it's almost impossible to ensure a, an animal collection like that to the true value of right. it. Um, and for the animals, the animals themselves, it really, really, it, it was about as difficult as as a thing as I've gone through. But I just said I would drive from my facility back to my house i'm going back to my house i still have my house right i got my wife i still got my kids all my employees are are safe um you know most people when they have a fire it's at their home and they're at some hotel that night trying to figure out what the kids are going to wear to school tomorrow what are we going to brush our teeth with so 
I was able to recognize, you know, and gain some perspective because, you know, again, I'm, you know, I'm fighting the tears as I'm driving, you know, really, you know, crying my eyes out. But then again, I pull up to my house and I go, okay, here's really, that's some perspective. You know, my, my, my home, my family, my staff, they're still okay. And then the lessons of football, the lessons of sports, you get knocked down, you got to get back up. You can't just lay there. <laughs> right. The next play is coming. Right. The next game is coming. And if I'm too busy, you know, being sad about what has happened, I, I can't move forward. And not that I, I want to forget it, but I have to move on. Life has to go on. And, you know, I'll never forget that. And whenever I – so many of the cages in the facility were made of plastic. And whenever I smell burning plastic, I mean, it brings me back instantly to that moment. So it, these scars are still there emotionally. But you got to move on. You got to move forward. And we, as a as a company and as a business, were able to move forward with uh, our Ship Your Reptiles company and our Ship Your Aquatics company and any other things that we do. Um, so we're still involved in the hobby. I still enjoy seeing other people and their animals and celebrating their breeding successes and the different things that they're doing. We're just in a different space because, again, you know, our, to go back into the live animal world was just a little too heartbreaking to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. And before we get into our final questions, can you just are there places people should go to learn more? You mentioned um, Ship Your Reptiles. Uh, wh- where should people turn to check out more of what you're doing? Okay, you can go to the reptilereport.com. So we have a staff that combs the various places where reptile people go on the Internet and finds all the best stories and best postings and best pictures and posts them all there at the reptilereport.com. Uh, so it's essentially uh, an online reptile newspaper that is updated every day. And we your fresh content is put up there every day. So whether you're a boa person, a frog person, a turtle person, or if you're like the invertebrates, tarantulas, or you know all those different weird spiders, all that information is up there at thereptilereport.com. There's also a link at thereptilereport.com where you can go to the Reptile Report Marketplace, where if you got some, you're interested in buying reptiles, or you want to sell some reptiles or trade reptiles, that's a place where you can do all of that. And if you're in the business of reptiles, you can go to shipyourreptiles.com, and we can handle all your shipping needs, sell you all the dedicated packaging materials to have your animals uh, arrive to the new homes safely and securely, and our customer service staff can walk you through that shipping process step-by-step. We also, as I mentioned, have Ship Your Aquatics for all the folks who are breeding fish and corals and aquatic plants and need to send them out to their customers as well. Awesome. And when we post this, um, we will be sure to include those links on our website, justnotsports.com. Uh, awesome. fi- finally, okay. Chad. Uh, thank you. And thank you so much for all the time today. We like to end our interviews. Um, you know, I know as an athlete, you're well aware of the kind of crazy aptitude test that people would give you either at the combine or, or you know, when you're going through free agency. And so we, we have something we call the Just Not Sports Wonderlick test, where we give you five questions about your interest, in this case, reptiles' role in, in sports and pop culture. Uh, you think you're up for it? Yes. I'm sitting <laughs> down. I'm ready. Let's do it. All, All right. right. <clears throat> five questions. Go. Question Adam. number one. Kobe Bryant takes his nickname from what type of snake? The Black Mamba. The black mamba is a very fast, probably the fastest of all venomous snakes, moves very fast, uh, very thin, agile, incredibly athletic snake that's also very deadly. 
I was going to say, is it deadly? I think he was going for like, you know, it's the most deadly, all this other stuff. Would you rank it as the most deadly or is it just kind of top five-ish? Uh, drop for drop, it's Venom is not probably in the top ten as far as drop for drop toxicity of the Venom. But because it's so athletic, because they do have a mean streak, they are one of the most difficult snakes to capture or to handle and deal with in captivity, for sure. So would Cottonmouth have been a better nickname? <laughs> <laughs> Those aren't uh, very scary at all. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy Kobe didn't go with Cottonmouth. Yeah, plus, right. it, you know, it's got the whole weed connotation to it. Uh, <laughs> which movie about snakes did Samuel L. Jackson allegedly sign on to to make after hearing the title? Uh, snakes on a Plane. Um, That's and, right. you know, when I had to get my business, Shipper Reptiles, uh, approved to use FedEx, we had to have some conversations with the pilots' union because <laughs> they had fear about snakes on a plane. Wow. Who uh, can blame them after that movie? This just came up, <laughs> up in my head, but Samuel L. Jackson did another movie with the title, with the word snake in it. Can you name the name of that movie? I'll give you a hint. Justin Timberlake was in it. Timberlake and Samuel L. Jackson. Black Snake Moan. Ah, there we go. Yes. um, Justin Timberlake's in that? He is. He plays a a nervous uh, uh, military deserter, I believe. Hmm. Is All right. the female lead in that? Um, yeah, I, I can Christina see Christina Ricci, right? Yes. Servino, Mia Servino? I yeah. think it's Christina Ricci. I think Christina Ricci, yeah. Christina Ricci, Christina Ricci, right, yeah. right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, all right, well, two for two, three more. What insurance company uses a gecko as its corporate mascot? These are softballs. These yeah, are real these softballs, are Chad. Uh, that is Geico. Right. Correct. That, that gecko is a day gecko from madagascar they're green geckos uh, they eat uh soft fruits and flower pollen uh, they actually make pretty decent pets but if they get out the cage they can climb the walls and they can run away, away from you pretty quickly so so far you are three for three number four by my count there are two franchises in the four ma- four major american sports so NHL, NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball that have reptiles for mascots. Name one. Arizona Diamondbacks. Yes, sir. Can you name the second? Uh, a little trick, a little trickier. The, the second in college football, the Maryland Terrapins, which is a species of turtle. Yeah. But uh, I'm, there are no NFL reptile teams. Um, is there an NBA reptile team? I'll give you a hint. This is an extinct yeah, reptile. Ah, Toronto Raptors. Yeah, you got it. No, no, that's is it. But that's well. Yeah, I, I guess they're like the Jurassic Park raptor, the the dinosaur raptor. Yes, not the raptor. Falcon raptor. Okay. Right, right. yeah. So is, but, well, at least the mascot is, is, is a dinosaur. <laughs> Correct. Uh, yeah. Yes. 
we we know there's some debate about dinosaurs descending from birds versus reptiles. We're gonna forget all that. They look like a cool reptile. Jurassic Park. Everyone loves a movie. It counts. Right. <laughs> all right. Last one. You're four for four. One. This one is near and dear to my heart. So number five in the Karate Kid, Danielson faces off versus an evil martial arts dojo dojo named after what snake? Cobra Kai. Yeah. Cobra Kai dojo. Cobra Kai, never die. Sweep the leg. Yeah. Sweep the leg. Sweep well, the leg. you swept You swept our wonder leg test. Five for five. Uh, Chad, it's so great to hear you talk about this. We, the whole reason we started this show is so that we could really dive into things that the sports world and athletes are passionate about, and your passion for reptiles is just unquestioned. Uh, you were one of the first people we targeted to be on. We can't thank you enough for coming on. We really appreciate it. Well, again, uh, thanks for having me on. I certainly appreciate it. I want to talk about this stuff on radio very often, so this was uh, one of the more fun radio hits I'll do for a while. Um, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, and every time I see a snake, I'm going to hit you up on Twitter, at ChadBrown94, so get ready for that. I'm ready for it, man. All right, well, Chad, thank you for so much for joining us, and uh, we're going to take a quick break. Today's episode of Just Not Sports is sponsored by TheHeckler.com. You know, Adam and I work in Chicago, and The Heckler is definitely a must-read during our workday. This is a site that's all about life as an American sports fan. You know, there's really funny satire stories, as well as real sports news and commentary posted every day. And the site also offers a ton of really great group road trips to see Chicago teams like the Cubs, Bears, Blackhawks, and more. That's just such a great way to catch a game with a really, really fun group of people. The Heckler also has an awesome online store where you can buy really great merchandise. They've got sweatshirts, mugs, koozies, and just a freaking ton of really hilarious t-shirts. Not just about sports, but also about stuff like St. Patty's Day, college, video games, and more. Anyway, we love The Heckler. We're super appreciative for them for being our first sponsor of the show. So please go check it out. Browse the store. Read some funny articles while you're there. Theheckler.com. This summer, LeBron James made headlines when he starred with Amy Schumer in the comedy Trainwreck. It was that rare example of an athlete getting rave reviews on the big screen. But it wasn't the first time an NBA player successfully made the leap to Hollywood. Way, way back in 1998, then Milwaukee Bucks shooting guard. Wow, that was a different era. Mm -hmm. Ray Allen of the Milwaukee Bucks raised eyebrows when he starred in the Spike Lee movie He Got Game alongside Oscar winner Denzel Washington. And this was no gimmick. I mean, this is Denzel Washington. This is a serious role, a serious movie, and a seriously competent performance for a first-time uh, actor. Roger Ebert called Allen, quote, that rarity, an athlete who can act. It looked like it was a start of a promising acting career, but instead Ray Allen basically disappeared from Hollywood. So, Adam, as we look back on He Got Game so many years later, especially in the wake of LeBron making his acting debut this summer, is Ray Allen the ultimate one-hit wonder of athlete actors? It's a good question. So I did a little research. He did do one other movie. He did. 2001 film called Harvard Man. About point ga- gambling, right? Sports gambling? Uh, I think that was think one of the themes. Adrian games, yeah. Adrian Grenier was in it. Sarah Michelle Gellar. Sarah, very good. Yeah. Oh, I know I know my Sarah Michelle Gellar. It I was, was a big Buffy guy. It was billed as a drama comedy thriller. I have not seen this, but I have seen He Got Game. When you're billed as a drama comedy thriller, you are none of those things. You, yeah. 
You are direct to video is what you are. That's like, uh, to, to paraphrase Bill Simmons, like that's like the restaurant that has a thousand options. None of those options are going to be good. <laughs> TGI Fridays, P.F. James, got it. So that's the only other, but, but you know. Cheesecake oh, Factory. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. But for um, uh, for a, uh, an actor who came out of the gates the way that Ray Allen did, with He Got Game, with a performance like this that was pretty right. well regarded in a Spike Lee movie, yep. in a Spike Lee movie that opened, even though it didn't do great at the box office, it opened number one. It opened number one, made $21 million overall, and then much more. Uh, in DVD sales. For Gen Z people, $21 million back in 1998 was $3.7 trillion today. <laughs> no. Um, but to come out of the gate like that, with that type of performance and that serious movie, and to only do one other movie, an Adrian Grenier, Sarah Michelle Gellar yeah. video, or, or, you know, vehicle, what happened? And has anyone really explained this? Uh, you know, I do know that Ray Allen was very interested in art all the way back from his time in Milwaukee. And I think he spent a great deal of his free time, um, in art, but I don't think anyone knows why he never got another role. I think maybe he was typecast when the, your character's name is Jesus Shuttlesworth. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to get a role as, uh another character and i'm not sure frankly that he had any interest he's generally an introverted guy i think it's the latter right because he would have gotten roles i mean other dudes got roles in that era um but okay jesus shuttleworth Mm -hmm. how much more popular would ray allen be if that was his real name well the amazing thing is uh a couple years ago when he played for the miami heat um all of the players, there was a couple games where all the players had their nicknames put on the backs of their jerseys. Oh, right. And he was Shuttlesworth. He, that's the name they put on those those like um, specialty Can jerseys? Can you imagine what a number 20 Shuttlesworth Miami Heat jersey is worth now? All Especially, right. I think that was the same season where he hit the game-winning shot uh, in the NBA Finals. Right. Yep. It's probably worth $19 on eBay. Let's not go nuts. I mean, well, I'm getting it. <laughs> yeah, you should. Uh, you know, I, is do you think of He Got Game as an all-time sports movie? I thought the movie did something that movies hadn't really done before. So if you think about movies and really examining the business of recruiting, so you think of Blue Chips. Right. Um, but that was almost slapstick. Uh, because of Shaquille O'Neal's character, and then uh, Nick Nolte, I believe, is the head coach, and was generally a terrible acting performance. Were you debating Nolte or Busey? Nolte, or Busey? <laughs> yeah, I, I was. <laughs> right. Uh, but I thought this was an interesting movie because it, it it was said to be based on Stephon Marbury's recruiting story. So Stephon Marbury had been recruited since he was in the sixth grade. This was the new. Sonny Vaccaro, age of recruiting. Right. And Jesus Shuttlesworth in the movie, uh, similarly, is recruited by anybody and everyone, including the NBA, um, and he has to make a difficult decision. Now, there some, are some other layers with his father, 
played by Denzel Washington, who kills his mom and goes to jail, and then is released from jail in order to recruit his son to go to Big State because the warden of the prison is a Big State alum. Brad, you haven't seen this movie, and I have a feeling you may not see No, it no, not. you were doing a great job, like, peeling back the ridiculous layer, onion layers of the plot. So the premise is ridiculous in the father-son relationship sense, but the idea that everybody uh, is in your pocket pocket you can be a high schooler and on sports center every night you can be on the cover of sports illustrated as a high schooler used to seem ridiculous until you had new york product felipe lopez who had an average but not this not spectacular nba career but you would have never thought you would see a high schooler on the front on the cover of sports illustrated and now even high school athletes are held in such high regard and this really before the age of YouTube and, of course, and obviously social media as well. So it's be, athletes are under even more scrutiny now. Yeah, I mean, the whole dynamic of, you know, he's, he's really choosing schools, but he's choosing will he, re, will he re-embrace his, his long-lost father. I mean, that's the crux of the story, correct? Will he forgive his father yeah. for killing his mother and that will somehow lead to harmonious basketball performance. Yeah, and spoiler alert, the movie's 17 years old. If you if you haven't seen it by now, we are not responsible for ruining how this is going. But, like, I I will say that, I guess to tie it back to LeBron, because I think this is why this movie's top of mind with us. Mm-hmm. I mean, he got a mm-hmm. ton of buzz about his performance over the summer in Trainwreck, and I guess I'm just curious, like, is Ray Allen's performance the best athlete acting that we've seen is that the gold standard not just for nba but for other movies or do you feel strongly no is he the greatest athlete actor of our time without having seen or that performance is that the that perform the what i love about that performance is uh i felt some of his monologues and interactions with uh many characters in the movie were they fell a little flat in my personal opinion but the fact that he had such a great interaction with Denzel Washington and the father-son relationship was very believable and the anger that he felt towards his father was very believable. In that sense, I thought he did a great job. I don't think that He Got Game is a great movie. Nonetheless, it interests me to the point that I've seen it probably between 15 and 20 times. (laughs) I don't think it's a great movie. I just have seen it all like all the times you can see it. I own it. Um, the The cinematography is great. Also, the soundtrack, uh, or sorry, yeah, the score soundtrack. for the movie provided by or was taken from the music of American composer Aaron Copland. Oh, so to see the juxtaposition of the uh, classical. Uh, music and the streets of New York and on the playgrounds was really fascinating to me, and I thought it worked well. We talked about this when we talked about doing this segment. You said there's some weird story about the the climactic one-on-one scene, right, between him and Denzel? There is. So Denzel Washington actually played – I don't know that he played varsity or if at that time there were still JV college teams, but I know that he played for P.J. Carlissimo – at Fordham University. He ultimately ended up 
not playing basketball, uh, played for a couple seasons. Was that because he was suspended for choking P.J. Carlson? No, because he realized he was going to be one of the greatest actors of all time and devoted himself to theater. So there's I've heard several different versions of the story, but here's the one I like to tell because it's the most exciting to me. So in the script, Spike Lee had written down that, had scripted that Ray Allen would beat Denzel Washington 10 to nothing in this game of one-on-one. This game of one-on-one, by the way, was played, again, spoiler alert, for if Denzel's character won, then Ray Allen had to go to big state. Jesus Shuttlesworth had to go to big state. And then the warden would consider letting Denzel Washington or Jake Shuttlesworth, as the character's name, out of prison early um, for helping make this recruitment. So um, what ended up happening is uh, New York playground product Denzel Washington said, "Uh uh-uh, it's not going down like that. We will play for (laughs) real, uh, and we will play for real, and whatever happens, happens. So Spike Lee said, just roll with it. And I don't remember the final score. I believe it was 10 to four or 10 to five. Yeah. He got out early. I'm sure someone's going to correct this right. right away. And as soon as I get off, I'll go look and see that I'm wrong. But the fact that Denzel Washington scored the first few baskets of the game against a, a player much taller and much more skilled than he was, it was kind of impressive. To, it's impressive knowing the behind the scenes of that uh, that he was able to hold his own with the NBA All-Star. So gut check, really quick. Best athlete performance in a movie ever? Leading leading performance. Uh, I'm going to say yes, only because I can't think of any others. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, and we're going to put up – we want to hear from you. We're going to put up some information about this and have the debate on JustNotSports.com. Go there, check it out, make your voice heard. Real quick, Adam, you're going to reboot this now. Who's Jesus Shuttleworth? What NBA player? Uh, I would like to say LeBron, but that's too easy. Steph Curry. I know you're gonna say Steph and his Curry. dad. Just, just, th- just do it. <laughs> just lay it all out. Well, there has been talk about a he got game two, starring Ray Allen, that would show years later what became of Jesus Shuttlesworth oh. after a long NBA career. But as he said, you got to bring back everybody. You got to bring back Lala, played by Rosario Dawson, Dom Pagnotti, the super agent, of course, Denzel Washington, and the variety. Best. Walter McCarty. Walter McCarty, Rick Fox. They're all coming back. Absolutely. I'm in. John hey, Wallace. That's our show for today. I just want to thank um, Chad Brown, who is one of our all time favorites in terms of athlete passions. We had to have him on for the first episode. We were so appreciative of him making so much time and um, surviving the various encounters he's had with snakes over the years to make that interview worthwhile. Uh, Want to tell people to go to JustNotSports.com for daily updates, articles, news, analysis, and more. Follow us on Twitter at JustNotSports. Email us, show tips, picks, like whatever you want us to talk about, we're happy to. We're JustNotSports at gmail.com. Adam, thanks to you, buddy. Thank you, Brad. This was fun. Oh, I'm about to do right.